You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Wednesday, September 2nd, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington in New York, joined shortly by our managing editor, Ed Harrison. Also, later in this show, we're joined by James Altucher, who talks about his controversial essay about the death of New York City. But first, the day's stories with Nick Correa. Thanks, Ash. Today, the Australian government announced that the nation had fallen into recession in the second quarter after almost nearly three decades of economic growth. The 7% contraction in GDP is the sharpest decrease Australia had experienced since record keeping had begun in 1959. In the first quarter of this year, the country had experienced a 0.3% drop in GDP. The severity of this recession was even worse than was expected. Economists had estimated a 5-7% to contraction. And before this year, the biggest contraction in Australia's GDP was in the second quarter of 1974, at 2%. The drop in GDP is attributed to the global pandemic, as well as to policies enacted to contain the spread of COVID-19. At this time, Australia's second most populous state, Victoria, is still under lockdown as it continues to struggle in warding off a surge in infections that occurred from returning travelers. And officials have extended the state of emergency in Victoria for six months. In this time, Australia has reported that welfare payments have increased by 41.6%, a record amount, to support an increase in recipients as well as doling out additional payments. Their unemployment rate stands at 7.5%, which is the worst it has been in 22 years. In July, more than a million Australians were unemployed. Spending on services fell by 17.6%, and hours worked had fallen 9.8%, which was also a record amount. Just as the global recession has devastated millions upon millions worldwide, this also is consequential for Australia, relative especially to how long the country was in a period of economic expansion. And with that, I'll hand it back over to Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Thanks, Nick. Welcome back, Ed. Yo, great to be back. Another update in the markets today. It's been an interesting one. You know, Ed, I read credit write-downs most days, uh, but the last couple of days, you've been absolutely on fire. You've developed, I think, a really comprehensive thesis that helps explain some of the things that are happening in markets. Uh, we're going to get into that just shortly. But for me, at least, the headline is this. While U.S. equity market indices are going up, there's potential risk in this market that may be unique to retail investors. And I think that's a really powerful and important story. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I would frame it in terms of my September to October thesis uh, with volatility increasing. We already see the VIX going up, but uh, we can get to why that's the case and how I think it's somewhat artificial. But, uh, the, you know, there's potential equity drawdown risk going forward. The I think the macro background for this is uh, what's happening in the fixed income market. You know, when I when you go back to 2015 with uh, fixed income, 
what was going on then was the sovereign debt crisis in Europe. And what we saw was the ECB turning it on. Uh, they put rates to zero. They went negative. Uh, every, they they you know, did whatever it took in order to make things work. And we saw the same thing across Europe. You know, the, the SNB followed, uh, the Danish Central Bank followed, the Reichsbank, and the Japanese as well. So all of those rates, all those curves went, went flat as a pancake, not just to the short end, but, you know, they went uh, flat out to the, to the long end, to the 10, the 30-year uh, range. So the right. only place you could get any yield pickup was in what I was calling the Anglo-Saxon countries. That is Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the UK, and the US. And right. my thesis, starting at the beginning of 2015, was that, that that's where you wanted to be because there was going to be a convergence to zero. That means every single country was going to move towards these flatter yield curves over time. And you just wanted to ride that wave down in order to uh, take advantage of the convexity of the curve at, at that particular part of, of, of the curve, of the yield curve. Because, you know, you get even more convex so that you get more pickup the lower the yields are. And so that that trade has basically just about played out now. So that's right. the, the piece that I wrote on Tuesday that uh, you were talking about. For well, me, that trade is now over. Well, let's just for a little context here, because you absolutely nailed this in 2015. And let's just quote directly. And this is you uh, on Tuesday quoting yourself from 2015. Quote, as low nominal GDP growth takes hold, we should expect short-term interest rates to remain low and for the yield curve to flatten. There are three main reasons for this. And this is you know, pretty incredible looking back. First, low nominal growth rates imply low inflation or deflation. Second, to the degree that market volatility produces risk-off sentiment, the bid for safe assets will further suppress yields. And third, and most importantly, the natural rate of interest on a zero-day fiat currency liability is zero. And then you go on to say, I expect the safe asset class in low-flation currency areas will be dominated by these trends, causing yields to stay low or even shrink. This convergence to zero makes the highest-yielding safe assets attractive and thus favors New Zealand and Australia, as well as the US, UK, and Canada to some degree. Bang, spot on. January 2015, Ed Harrison. There you go. Yeah. So it's good to have that thesis validated. You know, you could say that there's more juice to, to squeeze out of that. But, you know, you look at the British curve, uh, we're at 30 basis points in the 10 year. Certainly, I know that uh, some people have talked about negative interest rates in the US and elsewhere. So potentially you could see those curves go negative and obviously there's some pickup there. But what I'm trying to say is, is, is that to the degree that we're as close as we're gonna get now, it's a good time to start looking elsewhere. Uh, yeah. and, and you know this is compounded uh, for everyone, including retail investors, which we'll, we can get to later by the fact that when we get to these levels, we're, we're in a world of hurt. And I think, um, uh, GMO, which is an asset manager that was formerly run by uh, Jeremy Grantham, they had a great piece that came out just recently. It was their 2Q letter, and they were talking about this exact same thing. If you think about uh, government bonds, what they're supposed to do, they're supposed to give you some income. 
They're supposed yeah. to give you some liquidity in bad times. You know, that's the whole thing about safe assets. But also, they're supposed to act as a uh, a mitigating factor when you have equity drawdowns. So when the equity markets go down, uh, ostensibly people rush to these safe assets, and as a result, they bid the yields lower. That causes uh, you to have some yield pickup, and as a result, that balances out your portfolio, and you you don't feel the full pain of the equity drawdown. Interestingly, they sh they showed that in this COVID-19 crisis, the only um the only bonds that worked on on the 10-year level to mitigate any of the drawdown that we saw in March were the Anglo-Saxon ones, the ones that were converging to zero. The ones that already had gone to zero or were in negative rate territory, every single one of them also lost uh uh in that in that drawdown. So not only did you lose in your equity portfolio, but you also lost on your bond portfolio. But now that we have converged down to zero, even with the Anglo-Saxon countries, and, and I'd throw Norway in there as well, but they're a special situation, so I'm not talking about them. Basically, in the next equity drawdown, you are actually absolutely going to get crushed. So a 60-40 uh, investor who's thinking, okay, I can lose 30% in my equities, but I'll win maybe 10%, 8% on my bonds. And that will mean that overall, you know, I'll be down, uh, say, 20%, a tolerable amount. Instead, what's going to happen is, is you're going to lose 30, 35% on the equity side, and then you'll lose another 2 or 3% on the bond side. So you'll be fully, uh, you know, risked out as a result of that. Yeah. Asset allocation here, uh, which saved the day for you uh, in the past, may not do so in the future. You say it very clearly in the next equity drawdown, bonds will do nothing for you. Exactly. And so for the retail investor, the question is, is are they a buy and hold investor? Uh, you know, in the past, they've been buy and hold. Uh, when you look at the March drawdown, uh, we got to about 35%. And most people, uh, you know, they said, we can handle that. Will you be able to handle a 40% drawdown when your bond portfolio is also sucking wind at the same time? I don't think that uh, we want to see that test. But I think that's the test that we have to think is a reasonable worst case scenario going forward. And so that was the thesis that I put forward in terms yeah. of uh, when you think about where we are now with the end of the the convergence to zero trade the question is is what do you do to replace that income what do you do to replace that uh you know that offset during critical times in the fixed income portion of your portfolio uh, basically what you do is is you go uh, out the risk curve you go at longer duration and there are certain other asset classes that you can go into emerging markets uh high yield and you can go into asset-backed securities. That's what uh, GMO was saying. Uh, but all of those do not have the same liquidity profiles that you have in the government bond portfolio. So ultimately, it's a trade-off that I think is going to be very difficult uh, for people to deal with. Right. And uh, this is one of the, what I would call, uh, macro uh, factors that we'll, we'll have to watch and see as we deal with the volatility going forward. Yeah, because this is such an important point and one that may be a little bit wonky to understand. You also quote 
Ben Inker, who's one of the asset managers at GMO, and it's probably worth citing here. He says, when I was a student studying finance, I was taught that government bonds serve two basic functions in investment portfolios. They were to generate income and provide a hedge in the event of a depression-like event. For the first 20 years or so of my career, they did exactly that. And then he goes on to say, and I'm going to skip down here, uh, this winter, U.S. Treasuries once again did their hedging job admirably, providing substantial positive returns when riskier assets fell into the early stages of the COVID-19 crisis. But that success has come at a cost. At today's yields, Treasuries not only fail to provide a useful amount of yield to investors, but also have likely lost their ability to hedge in the event of further economic trouble, exactly to the point you were making. Right. And, and let me just say that, uh, you know, obviously they do have the liquidity role. That is, is, is that if you need liquidity, they're the, the closest that you can get to cash, to money. And so people want that because, you know, that's a, a very liquid market that you can hide out in. But when it comes to those other two functions, they are serving no purpose at all. And so if you want those two purposes served, you got to go elsewhere. And that's why Inker was talking about, uh, or actually it was Inker's uh, colleague who was talking about what are the alternative asset classes and what are the pitfalls uh, of those asset classes if you want to rebalance your portfolio away from government bonds so you can get some yield pickup. But that's where we are right now. Yeah. Exactly. And here's the key pivot that you make in Tuesday's credit write down. And this is the second component of the, what we've been talking about here. You quote Mohammed El Aran in a recent piece that he wrote in the Financial Times, quote, over the past few weeks, the fear of missing out on an unceasing equity rally has increasingly been expressed through call options, contracts that give the right to buy at a fixed point in the future rather than equity longs. That, that limits the amount of risk and gives users the ability to capture rallies. It has been supplemented by more downside, quote, tail protection aimed at safeguarding portfolios from sharp drops. With that, the VIX volatility index has decoupled from equity indices, adding to signals that a large market correction, should one materialize, would encourage more professional selling than could ever overwhelm the buy the dip retail investor. And here is the absolute key. This is what tees up today's newsletter. Translation, professional investors are increasingly looking to mitigate tail risks while chasing upside returns. Retail investors aren't doing that. So if we hit an air pocket, not only will retail investors be caught flat-footed, they will be surprised by the magnitude of the sell-off as actions in the derivatives market will make things even worse. Yeah, unfortunately, I think that that's what we're headed for. And, you know, I sort of did that, that I wrote that and was talking to Muhammad Alarian's piece as a taster for what I wrote earlier today. And, you know, some of this was based on uh, things that I saw that Kevin Muir at the Macro Tourist uh, was talking about. He did a great explainer. I think he is, uh, you know, he's really good in these, these uh, trading things. And Larry McDonald. Uh, from the bear yeah. trap support, some of the things that he said. But what people were seeing, and this is, comes from Citadel, um, they said that what they're seeing is a a big name, you know, like a big institutional investor, uh, definitely one particular investor who went in while uh, we were all at the beach on vacation and started buying up calls and call spreads across a basket of uh, large tech 
uh, large cap tech names like Adobe, Amazon, Facebook, Salesforce, Microsoft, Google, Netflix, you name it. And Citadel says there was over $1 billion of premium that was spent on upwards of $20 billion in notional um, through strike. And so the the interesting, the important bit about this is, is that that group of seven stocks that I just mentioned make up about a 40% weighting of the NDX, which is the NASDAQ uh, um, the, the, the NASDAQ uh, ETF that, that people are investing in. And as a result, when you do things in, with, in those individual names, it moves the index as a whole. So whatever you're doing for those names, uh, it's going to happen on, on an index-wide level. And ultimately, those things mattered. And it, they have added not only upside momentum, the uh, massive upside momentum to those individual shares and the indices that they're in, but also volatility. So we're in a position now where the VIX, where volatility is going up at the same time that you have shares going up, which is not what you would normally see. No, typically it's inversely correlated. Uh, you know, and for for people who may not have followed all of the details there, the the short answer of what you're saying is basically, look, you've got these seven stocks that represent a massive and disproportionate percentage of an index. And professional institutional investors are buying derivatives products to get upside exposure in the event that those shares rise in value. So as a consequence, you have in institutional investors controlling large percentages of notional value outstanding in derivatives contracts, pushing equity markets ever higher based on an ever smaller number of stocks used to through derivative positions to drive that outcome. And that strikes you as something that has potential risk. Yeah, and the part of the potential risk is there. Uh, what, there's an artificial, what I would call, increase in the VIX, and also uh, there's uh, there's a, a decrease in the gamma. That you know, that is that dealers are short gamma. We can get into that. I don't want to get into that because uh, it, it's very technical stuff. But the right. the, the the reality is, is that when the, when you fill an order as a dealer. Uh, uh, to someone of this size, and across the street, people are filling uh, this, this these orders. You know, you're effectively short those positions. And when you are, uh, number one, the size is so great that it causes the vo implied volatility of those options to go up. So it therefore causes the implied volatility of the market overall to go up. So that's why VIX is is increasing. But at right. the same time, you, the dealer, you have to get back into the market and you have to buy up those shares in order to, uh, you know, keep your hedging strategies uh, correct so that you you you're not exposed. You're just trying to show, you know, show uh, prices. You're not trying to take uh, positions. And so right. this is causing you know, more upside momentum in the in these uh, these names, more upside momentum in the shares overall. And at the same time, increasing volatility. A perfect example is Salesforce.com, CRM ticker. Uh, they released their earnings. They went up like 26% on that day. You know, it was like a three or four standard deviation move. Why? It's because of all of these things that are happening in the background in the derivatives market. Right. The, 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 the thing is, is, is that when you get all of this excess volatility, uh, artificial uh, upside momentum as a result of what's happening in the derivatives, as soon as... Uh, these buy orders stop being filled and potentially you get sell orders, it it goes the other direction. That right. is, is that suddenly you hit an air pocket 
and then the bottom falls out. This is exactly what Muhammad Al-Aryan was talking about, that you know the drawdown will be more severe as a result of what's going on in the derivatives market. And you know, retail investors are not, they're not positioned for that. They don't understand that that's what's happening. But when we talk about, you know, Apple trading at 40 times earnings uh, right now, whereas it was trading at 12 times earnings at, at January 2019, a lot of that is driven by a mania, but some of that is more recently driven by the mechanics of, of the market that I'm talking about right now. Yeah. Uh, gamma, of course, is the change in delta. Uh, so delta is the, is the spread between the, the, the derivatives price and the actual price of the underlying. You know, this gets a little wonky, but just to make the point and to hammer it home, because this, this paragraph, the, the next to last paragraph of today's credit write downs is a gut punch. You say, quote, if my gut is right, the next drawdown will be large and retail investors will hold on for dear life through at least 40% losses. But at some point for those in retirement or nearly there will be forced to cut their losses. And that will add to the selling pressure, close quote. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, and you know, we don't know is if that's what September and October portend. And obviously, I hope not, but that's where the downside risk is. You know, a massive drawdown, and then there's nowhere to hide because of what I just told you regarding uh, bonds. And, you know, people uh, who are uh, buy and hold investors just uh, suffering massive losses and, and then basically uh, throwing in the towel at the worst possible moment, adding to the selling pressure, making it even worse. That's that's sort of a perfect storm. I think that it could happen. It's something to think about. And uh, it, it's definitely a reasonable worst case scenario, especially if we have uh, negative data prints in September and October going forward. So Ed, what should our subscribers be watching to understand whether or not that thesis is playing out? In other words, what are the signs, the signals that you're going to be looking for in the market to see if that downside risk is increasing or perhaps diminishing? Oh, yeah, I'm looking for actually uh, the parabolic rise. I'm looking for a you know uh, many consecutive days of uh, of indices going up. And then parabolic rises in uh, because you know the higher they go, they go up, the longer they fall. For as an example, as of yesterday, the Nasdaq was thirty percent above its two hundred day moving average. So that means that in the very uh, you know in the middle of a pandemic, when we have double digit unemployment, the largest unemployment that we've had in the post World War II era after a, a massive 30% annualized decline in GDP, we have people who are piling into the NASDAQ, you know, the technology shares to the point where it's causing the, the index to go 30% above its 200-day moving average. That's a massive move. You know, uh, that means that that index is completely uh, exposed to downside risk. It, you know, it, it's definitely overbought. And that's that. Those are the kinds of things I'm looking for. We're already there, so you know, more of the same will just make it a lot worse from my perspective. And then, 
we have to see what happens in terms of the real economy. Any any sort of of a shock uh, could potentially tip the, these numbers in the wrong way. Interestingly, by the way, I might add that uh, the Q, the Q3 prints for uh, GDP come out five days before the election on November the 3rd. I just thought I'd throw that in there because I, th- I think that's kind of interesting. We live in interesting times, Ed. Let's just hit the the closing numbers from today because it is, once again, uh, it's just an echo, right? So the Dow closes at 29,100, up 1.6% on the day, 450 points higher. S&P closed 3580, up 54 points on the day, 1.5 percentage points higher. NASDAQ closes over 12,000 at 12,056, up 116 points for the day, nearly 1% higher. Uh, You know, one of the things that you mentioned was the rise uh, as one of the preconditions for this scenario for elevated tail risk, the rise of single name tech stocks uh, that have gone parabolic to the upside, accrued massive market capitalizations. Uh, Tony Greer yesterday actually pointed out that Apple now has a market cap that's roughly the same as the entire Russell 2000, about $2.3 trillion. Yeah. And, you know, that's an interesting stock because I uh, was talking about uh, on Twitter, I was talking about Apple the other day. And, uh, you know, Apple, when you look at their earnings profile in terms of how much their earnings are increasing, it's not a high growth stock. And yet it's trading at 40 times earnings. Uh, You look at Facebook, 36 times earnings, Google, 36 times earnings, Microsoft, 40 times earnings. So I was looking back into the annals of history and thinking to myself, what is the answer in terms of what, you know, uh, potential scenarios where we've seen things like that? And of course, I came back to uh, the go-go days of uh, the Internet bubble, where actually Microsoft did get up to 75 times earnings. And interestingly, uh, CNBC's David Faber, he retweeted uh, my tweet about that, saying that um, General Electric got to 45 times earnings at that time. So that gives you a sense of how much more upside momentum we could potentially have in terms of the parabolic rise uh, relative to what we, we see today. I mean, di- there are different indices, uh, there are different markers that people talk about. They talk about the um, the CAPE and how the CAPE is very uh, is already at 2,000 levels. People talk about that, the number that you were talking about with regard to Apple. Um, but there is still the potential for uh, for this to run further before it comes back. But ultimately, you know, the framework that I'm living with says that, you know, when you get these second and third standard deviation moves into the fat tail realm of parabolic increases, it moves immediately all the way to the other side to fat tail decreases. That's where the crash risk comes from. It's not that, you know, uh, you go up a, a parabolic rise and then you trade sideways. You go up and then you crash down. Yeah. And that CAPE that you talk about, the CAPE ratio is a cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio associated uh, with uh, Dr. Schiller. It's a mechanism of cyclically adjusting on a 10-year basis, uh, a moving average that's inflation adjusted for understanding in a broader context where price to earnings ratios are. Hey, you know, those aren't even the most egregious examples. Amazon uh, trading over 100 times, trailing 12-month PE. And I believe Tesla now trading at like 1,150 times, trailing 12-month PE. 
Yeah. And, you know, I don't I never use Tesla and Amazon as examples because they're special cases in yeah. terms of how people are thinking about them. Amazon has always had a huge P.E. Yes. Partially because of their cash flow situation. You know, they're supposed to be using a massive amount of growth capex. And so as a result, their free cash flow. Uh, is much higher than their earnings and they're reinvesting the business and so forth. But if you look at Apple, if you look at Microsoft, you look at Facebook, those are relatively normal companies. They're all yep. trading at 40 times. And the truth of the matter is, you know, I don't care how low yields are. That's not a, a reason to, uh, you know, the discount rate is not a reason to suddenly goose you, yourself up to 40 times. If it were, you know, you have negative uh, uh, rates in, in Europe. Why aren't they trading at 40 times over there? I know that SMP, uh, you know, SAP, which is a, a, a German company in the technology space, they're trading at 36 times as well. Right. But uh, I think that that's, that's, a, that's a, uh, an outlier. Ultimately, people will do anything to justify these moves. There's, there's no fundamental basis for the you know, the level of of uh, of increase in multiple expansion that we've seen over the very recent uh, past. And that right. two, that 30 percent increase over the 200 day moving average in the Nasdaq is prima facie evidence of a parabolic move that makes that index vulnerable to a setback. Yeah. Yeah, and I agree with you in terms of looking at Amazon and uh, and Tesla as outliers. Microsoft, uh, Facebook, uh, much better proxies for an Apple, much better proxies for understanding price to earnings ratio. With that said, I will say though, these crazy outliers that always have bizarre explanations that people go, oh no, don't worry about that. It's a special case. That's CapEx, that's this, that's that. And then in retrospect, uh, when they get smacked down, we look back on it and go, well, maybe that wasn't such a special case after all. Well, you know, before we go to James Altucher, because I want to hear about that in terms of the death of cities, there's one last wrinkle I wanted to add into this whole thing with regard yeah. to Tesla, because I was looking again at Larry um, McDonald, something that he wrote, I think, probably a week ago about Tesla in terms of the stock split and its inclusion into the S&P 500. So there's a lot of speculation that Tesla will be included into the S&P 500. So some of the reason that you see this run up is, is front running that inclusion. Uh, and generally for large cap stocks like Tesla, what happens is, is that they do it on a quarterly basis. So um, uh, Larry McDonald was saying that, you know, second, third week of September for inclusion, maybe if they don't include it, then it's December. I would imagine that the S&P doesn't want Tesla running up continuously for another three months so that they're more likely to include it in September. And so people are front running that inclusion. Uh, the interesting bit, however, is, is, is that, you know, there's going to be a lot of ETF activity as a result of that, because then if you are uh, an S&P 500 indexer, um, you know, if you're a passive fund, you need to therefore take at least 1% because Tesla is such a big company now of your existing uh, portfolio and rejigger that to include Tesla into the mix. So that right there is telling you that uh, we're going to see more action in Tesla uh, coming forward, especially if it happens, as I think it will uh, sometime in September. So uh, hold on to your hats. Uh, it's going to be a bumpy ride. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be uh, one of the Tesla Q shorts right now. No, no. 
Yeah. Uh, so talking of shorts and shorting New York City, uh, we've talked about this theme, Ed, a lot. The death of cities, some of the things that's going on. So I had a chance to sit down today with James Altucher, uh, who is the uh, is the writer who really kicked this off uh, and made it a something of a national story. Let's take a look right now. James Altucher, welcome. Ash, so glad to be here and see you uh, live. Uh, nice, nice to be on the show. It's great to have you. You know, James, we could talk about literally a hundred different things. You're, you know, former hedge fund manager, investor, internet entrepreneur, best-selling author, podcaster, a million things we could talk about. But right now, the thing that is absolutely buzzing and hot is this idea that New York is dying and the and the firestorm of controversy that you set off with a piece that you wrote for the New York Post. You got Jerry Seinfeld to write a an op-ed to the New York Times yelling about it. This is the most fascinating story that we've seen in a long time. Yeah, it, you know, just the story of the story is interesting because I've never seen, I mean, right now we're living in an attention deficit society where you can't even sit still for like a 15 second TikTok video. I wrote a 5,000 word article to my friends and it ended up, I mean, you can't choose your, your readers, of course, but it ended up being read on radio stations and TV stations everywhere. It got shared 10,000 times. I mean, probably now 20 to 30 million people either read it or know a lot about it. And then Seinfeld wrote about it. I've never seen him write an article before. Like I wake up Monday morning and I'm getting all these texts like, James, you're a putz, you're a putz. And I'm like, <laughs> who even uses the word putz anymore? Like, it's like this depression era word. And, <laughs> and I'm like, why are these people doing it? And then I realized, uh, you know, I found out Seinfeld had spent a whole page of the New York Times just, you know, writing, trashing me basically. And, and then a friend of mine calls me up and says, see, this is what we're in a VR simulation. Do you believe me now? You wake up, Seinfeld just spent an entire page of the New York Times writing about you. And that's just a normal day in 2020. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah, it's completely wild. So, James, what's the thesis? What was the core idea that touched off the firestorm? Well, you know, I, I'm born in New York, was raised all around the metropolitan area, and I've, I've lived in New York City my entire adult life. I own a business in New York. My kids live in New York, go to school there. And so, but I've been seeing some disturbing trends. The title of the article was New York City is Dead Forever. Here's why. And the problem is, is that I was seeing, a, I was asking a lot of questions to people I knew, and I had all sorts of people on my podcast who were, you know, experts or whatever, and everybody seemed to be in denial about what was happening. Like everyone was saying, and this is what kind of what Seinfeld said is like, oh, New York City's got grit. New York, we always come back. Don't discount, don't count New York City out yet. And I'm like, yeah, but what about X, Y, Z, A, B, C? Oh, don't worry. Once the vaccine or once. Uh, you know, there's a new mayor. Everybody had a, once there's X, everybody will flood back into the city. Cause you know, 420,000 people, almost half a million people have left the city since March. And I mean, there's lots of different directions to attack this, but I essentially point out that already probably 30% or more of the restaurants are permanently closed. They're never going to open again. That's a, that's a big number with, with, you know, a hundred thousand employees included in that. Already, uh, you know, midtown offices are not, you know, you can go back to work, but they're only 5% filling up because employees are still remote and I give reasons why they're never going to 
come back or they're never going to fully come back, which is like people say, oh, well, Midtown's not New York City. True. But that's the entire industry. That's where most of the revenues of New York City come from. And then you have, you know, Broadway's down, which means tens of millions of tourism revenues, hotels, thousands of restaurants. And now, even since the article, like, I don't know why the mayor is doing this to de Blasio, but, you know, there's not going to be indoor dining at restaurants till 2021, which means 95 percent of New York City restaurants will go out of business. And that's not like an opinion. That's that's fact. Like I'm I am a storefront business owner in New York City. I know the community. Ninety five percent of those storefront owners will will go out of business. And, and again, we're just sort of touching the surface. Let me just jump in and ask you this. Is this a New York City story? In other words, is this specific to the mayor we have here and a variety of other social conditions? Or is this something that you think is going to be happening all across the country and potentially all across the world? That's a, a great question because, and a lot of people have been asking me that, and the answer is it's not as much de Blasio as people think. In fact, I left him out of the article on purpose because the problems that I mentioned I, I like I for instance, I didn't mention the indoor dining issue because, okay, maybe they negotiate and figure that out. I don't know. But the issues I mentioned are very much or they've already happened. Like thirty percent of the restaurants are already out of business. the The midtown, you know, it's already four hundred thousand people who have left the city and a good chunk of them not coming back. There's already apartment vacancies at an all-time high. I mean, you even see, I mean, I wrote this on August 13th, it's September 2nd now, and the latest article is, you know, U-Haul, you can't rent a U-Haul in New York City. So in terms of the other cities, I do think first-tier cities, specifically New York City, LA, San Francisco, are, are having serious problems. And the second or third tier, tier cities, like, Denver, Austin, Boulder, Phoenix, Miami, um, Nashville, uh, any of the Charlestons. So there's like 20 Charlestons, all of them. They're, they're, they're going to do fine. And I think the good news is, is that opportunity is going to be dispersed now throughout the entire country. It's no longer going to be the case that you say, oh, if you want to be a success, go to New York or L.A. or San Francisco. Even though even all those companies are moving out of those cities. So. Um, but New York City is going to be hit the hardest. It's the densest. It's, uh, it, you know, the tax base is going away. The deficits are skyrocketing. de Blasio is already talking about firing significant numbers of city employees, which means if you have no garbage collectors, you're going to have more garbage. If you have no EMTs, you're going to have worse health care. If you have less teachers, you're going to have worse education at police and so on and on and on. This yeah. is a major problem. They need to raise yeah. like more money than is possible to raise. Yeah. James, it's just struck me. There's no way we're going to be able to cover this topic in seven minutes. I don't know if you have time, but we'd love to get you back in for a longer segment. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. Awesome. Let's do it. James Altucher. Thanks so much, Ash. Interesting points. Ed, what did you think? I thought it was a great interview. I, actually, I think that uh, James is an entertaining guest, uh, first and foremost. You know, the way he speaks is great. Uh, he actually, uh, he's a comedy guy, so I can see that coming through, that uh, he really has a certain dynamic. But, you know, the interesting bit for me, actually, is in terms of thinking of, of the forward calendar here at Real Vision, uh, because that is, you know, part of the new normal uh, thing that we're talking about. Is this the new normal? That, you know, the fact that, all these people are leaving uh, New York. Is is James right or is he wrong? I think we need to get a bunch of different people together to talk about that, you know, in terms of real estate, 
uh, residential, commercial, in terms of is it the new normal that Tesla is uh, is you know ripping off to the races? There are a lot of different yeah. things that are happening right now because of the pandemic that seem like they could last forever. But you know the la- latest things that I hear is is that in London, as an example, people are going back to their restaurants. You know that yep. you know business as usual is slowly returning. So, you know, I have my doubts, but I- I'm really interested to see the full the full picture. Yeah, and it's interesting because it's regional and even like state by state. I understand New Jersey is about to start opening indoor dining. So maybe who would have ever thought it? New Jersey is going to be the big party spot for New Yorkers to flock to this winter. Yeah, I thought James was great. You know, he has a lot of interesting things to say, not just about the New York City uh, metro area, but also more broadly about commercial real estate, some of the shifts that we're talking about. You know, we booked it as a seven minute interview. Not a chance. We sat down with them and did another one. So we have a long form interview that's going to be appearing on Real Vision, I think, for essential tier subscribers in the next week or so. Good. Yeah, I, I will definitely be watching that. I really want to see what he has to say. Uh, uh, so that that's essential watching for me. Very much looking forward to it. And, uh, you know, hopefully there'll be some fodder for me to think about, you know, who else do we want to interview on that same topic at the other side of, of his view? Yeah, and I was just going to say, uh, we'd love to hear from our viewers what you think about the new normal and who you'd like to hear from and on what topics. Great uh, plug at the end, Ash. So um, I, I have nothing left for today. I really enjoyed talking to you. Uh, interested to see what uh, people think about my, uh, my, my, my thesis, if you will, uh, for uh, September and October. Ed, such great work. Must see, viewing, must read. Thanks for joining us. Talk to you soon. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.